Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Elaine C. Smith who is one of Scotland's best known performers, a star of stage and screen over many years. Elaine is an award-winning actress, a singer, writer, comedian, raconteur, campaigner, political activist, sister, wife, mother and granny. And ideally for this podcast, she is also a voracious reader. For over 30 years, Elaine has worked extensively in radio, TV, film and theatre. And I could spend the whole podcast just listing all the many productions she has been involved in. Many people will, of course, remember her brilliant portrayal of Mary Doll in the BBC comedy series, Rabsy Nisbet. Well, she has also been a leading light in Scotland's panto scene over the years. Oh, yes, she has. And she's also a BAFTA winner for her performance as Christine in the brilliant sitcom Two Doors Down. A graduate of the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama, which is now the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland, and also Queen Margaret University in Edinburgh. Elaine also has two honorary doctorates from Glasgow and the D universities, so perhaps I should just call you Dr Smith today. And Elaine has also written two books on her career, including her 2010 autobiography, Nothing Like a Dame. And she has also worked with the author Julia Donaldson on the children's book, The Glasgow Gruffalo. Elaine, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thank you very much. She sounds very interesting. She's <laughs> a mean, lot more interesting than I feel. <laughs> would well, you know? I mean, I was only half kidding when I said I could spend, you know, the whole podcast listening to everything you've been involved in because, I mean, it goes back so many years and, and people will remember some parts of, of your career, but you've done so many different things a whole across a whole variety of platforms, mm. which I suppose in, in the kind of profession you're in, it can be quite precarious. You must be delighted with everything you've been able to do over the years. Oh, I feel incredibly lucky. You know, when the pandemic hit, I I was in a play at the Lyceum in Edinburgh doing Brecht, doing uh, Mrs. Puntilla there, you know, a really heavy, weighty, funny, political piece. So it's the variety of it that keeps you going. You don't go and do something at the Lyceum because you're going to earn hundreds of money. You know, you go because it's creative and you get to work in a team, you get to do that. The same when I did things like Guys and Dolls or whatever. And that variety over 30 odd years has been what's kept me sane. I, I, I really am, somebody was talking the other day about American series and the thing about American series that once you commit I've been watching, or lots of us, everybody has on Netflix at the moment, you know, once you, uh, you know, like um, Viola Davis signs up for something like How to Get Away with Murder, that is 15 episodes, hour-long episodes, that's a year of your life, and she's done five series, so you don't get to go and do other things. I, I was sort of lucky in that you did something like Rab Sines, but you actually only filmed for eight weeks. And you had to fill up the rest of your year. And, you, and also you didn't get paid enough <laughs> to just retire. <laughs> so going off and it, it forced you into a sort of situation where, where you thought, oh, I'll try that. That'd be a good thing to do. And, and it developed, you know, going off and doing Calendar Girls was something that even my husband went, 
what are you thinking about doing that? And I, I just knew it was a really good step. It was the original production and, and I was, it was in London and two in the UK and I thought, that's an adventure. So I, I think that's what keeps me going, what stimulates me. I've noticed, so ironically, during the pandemic, I, I haven't missed the audience. I don't mean, that sounds awful. I haven't missed the approval of the audience, you know, a, a round of applause. I miss the creativity and I'll, I know I will love being able to, whenever we can, walk back on a stage again and see it. But I haven't needed the, you know, I know some actors that are demented that they're not performing but it hasn't done that to me at all. So maybe I've learned a wee bit. I think we've all learned a bit about ourselves during this, but I think the variety is, is what keeps you going. And I suppose as well, it, it, when people then look at you, then they can't pigeonhole you into, you know, you're one thing or you're another, you're a, you're a panto star, you're a comedian, because as you, as you say, you've, you've done so many different things that it's impossible for people to say you're this or that. And I think that's a good thing, I think, when people are then reflecting on your career and looking at what you can do and what you've done. I think I I agree with that now uh, because I'm 62, but for a long time, I found it really difficult because, you know, particularly the media and the press couldn't pigeonhole you. So for a long time, I became panto star Elaine C. Smith. And you go, but I've done hundreds more than that. Or for a long time, it was... Mary doll and so they're like almost like gold lined straight jackets if you know what I mean I, I can't tell you the amount of things I've done like corporate events or charity events or whatever when I turn up and people go I never knew you could do that <laughs> one of the reasons of doing a bird's eye view was to go out and go no this is actually who I really am you know going around Scotland and taking my show around and everything and it happened because I was at a charity event for friends of mine who are producers. I'd known them for a long time, but they didn't know. And I got up and did the raffle or something and then did a bit of stand-up and a bit of, uh, they asked if I would do it and a couple of songs. And I remember it was Michelle McManus, all people came up and said, you know, Elaine, I've been looking around Scotland going, where are the women? And she said, I never knew you did that. And of course she was of a different generation. And I hadn't done my stand-up for a long time. And then the great Ruth Wishart said to me at another event, she said, you need to get back out there and make people laugh. I haven't heard a room laugh like that in a long time. So it was, it was a sort of reinvention to go out and go, no, I do sing and I do stand up and I do. But I was almost sort of forced in it because I felt really, Shirley Valentine, when I went and did that, that was because nobody would see me as anything other than Mary Ness, but I couldn't get arrested for other jobs. But if I went, because they, they were like, oh no, she does that. I remember going for the bill and turning up. They wanted to see me. I was in London and I, I was only in my 30s. I had a leather jacket on, I bobbed to black hair and all that. You could see them when I walked in because they were waiting on Mary Nesbitt. <laughs> when I saw the part, I thought, oh no. But they were... They were completely befuddled by, oh, oh, she's not, oh, she might have been acting. And that's that's another thing as well that I get frustrated about. You know, when you act within your own accent, there, there's a perception, and in Scotland, that you're not really acting. That must be who you are. Nobody says to Robert De Niro, oh, no, the American accent again, Robert. Can you do something else? He's seen as, because he's done a variety of roles in his own accent, that's okay. But... For Scots, we do that thing of, oh, oh, that's what they do. And suddenly if you go off and do something with a very posh accent, then you're a real actor. So there were loads of frustrations along the way with it. 
But all of it with Shirley Valentine, ironically, I got the rights because Willie Russell was such a fan of Rabsi Nesbitt. So it worked, it worked for me. To, he loved the show and loved the character and, and also really loved the idea of Shirley Valentine being set in Glasgow and done that way. So it opens Hannah's doors, but it closes a few as well. So yeah. and that's what keeps you going. Because I, I was probably one of those people, maybe like Michelle McManus, I remember going to a charity event and you, you know, were, were performing at it and doing the kind of some of the stand-up and then the, the singing. And again, I think people used to be blown away by, the, by your voice and thinking, wow. Were, oh, my God. I never knew she sang. <laughs> and it's, it's, I don't blame people. I totally understand that, you know, but... Uh, it's that it's that continually surprising people, and as an American parliament says, Elaine, you got to keep moving. If nothing else, it makes you less of a target, <laughs> <laughs> which is what I do. Just keep dodging the bullets. I mentioned in the introduction that, amongst the many things that you are, is a, a voracious reader, and obviously, in terms of this podcast, that is absolutely ideal because uh, you know, even when I was, at, yeah. you know, you were sending me through some of the the list of the books, I got the feeling that you could have. I just kept listing and listing more books that you love. <laughs> and I take it you've always been a kind of... I'm a book a 41 in lockdown, I think. Yeah, a book 41 in lockdown I'm on now. And just I read a lot of the books that, that I hadn't had time to read, you know, those ones that you'd got. And I'd just been so busy that I couldn't. So it has is, is allowed me to do that. And Oh, yeah, I could... The list I sent you, I could have... I could have sent you 10 times that, you know. But I've actually, the, the Gruffalo was the first time I'd ever really adapted anything. And I've just finished the Gruffalo's Wayne now. And I did uh, The Princess and the Pea. I did that for a, a Scott James Robertson put together a, a beautiful Hans Christian Andersen stories and got myself and Val McDermott and various, himself and other writers to do a Scots version of that. So I really enjoyed that. And my daughter keeps saying to me, Mum, you should write your own. But I just kind of think you're yeah, right about <laughs> I mean, in terms of your own childhood, because say when you sent me through the list of books, and I, I'm always aware of how I get the easy part because I just ask the questions and then I'm pinning uh-huh. people down. Trying to choose books is just such a, oh. a difficult thing. But if you start back in terms of your childhood, and the first book that you'd mentioned to me was The Lion, The Witch and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis as a, as a favourite from childhood. What age would you have been when you first read that? I can remember the first time I heard it uh, because it was, we had that thing. Mrs. Kitchen was our primary school teacher, Newt Hill Primary, it was primary four. And uh, as a reward at the end of the day, she did a lovely thing of, if you were good, she read to you for 20 minutes. And she she obviously just loved it. It calmed her down and calmed us down. And we had to put our heads on the desk and she read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe to us and it transported me, and that's where the real love of reading came, and stories. I had never heard anything as magical or as beautiful. It transported me out of this primary school in a mining village in Lanarkshire into another world, and probably testament to the way that she read it as well. She brought it alive, and that Changed. I'd all. I'd always liked books. I'd always. Uh, they'd always been around. I was fortunate in that my grandmother and grandfather on. I, I had two different sides. My my mum's side of the family were sort of educated working class or middle class Catholics in Bales Hill, who education meant everything to them. 
So they had bookcases, you know, my other um, grandparents, my dad's parents lived in Hollytown. My dad would have been the first person to say they weren't formally educated. You know, the boys all worked at 14, there were, you know, 10 of them. And, and books were not things that they could afford. You know, when money was, they were, they were poorer, blah, blah, blah. But ironically, my dad was a great reader. My dad loved it. And again, I think it was being in the Air Force for him. So my mum and dad tended to read. They all, there was always a book on the go in the house. But at my grandmother's, there were, there were shelves. and she, You know, they had Dickens and, and things like that on the shelves. And my mum had gone to Elmwood in Bothwell and was quite bright. So therefore... Books had been quite a big part of, and she was a bit of a snob, my mum as well. So she was, she would always like to drop in that she was, she had read something or, you know, and, and also her family, had, most of them had gone on to university and become doctors or teachers or whatever. So part of that reading had been instilled into her and I think she definitely passed it on to myself. But that, but, and I'd, so I'd read The Famous Five and Secret Seven and Enid Blyton's and, and all of those sort of things. Ironically, my dad, although he wasn't as educated, was a magical storyteller. He used to come in and my sister and I would be lying in our bed and my dad would make up a story uh, and we would be in it and he would, you know, it was a real fantasy and mad, usually about cars of some sort because he was mad about motors. He was an engineer, so that ability to tell a story. I also had an Irish grandfather who was a totally mercurial liked a wee bit of a drink too much but magical storyteller as well and could tell a really funny story so I think that was all around me but it all solidified the, the line the witch in the wardrobe and it, it changed everything because I wonder as well and, and I've spoke to a lot of people about this about particularly their favorite book from childhood and it's either it's a book that's been read to them in the classroom or a book that their parents have read to them. And it's that, it's that shared experience of, because obviously you can sit there and you can read it yourself, but there's something, particularly when you are a child, there is something magical about somebody reading it to you. Yeah. It kind of, as you say, kind of brings it to life. Well, um, even now, I've, I've sort of getting a podcast during lockdown and I've got Barack Obama's book, but I'm listening to him read it in the podcast and it does bring it alive. I would still, I'll still go and read the book, but him reading from it just does bring it alive. Maybe there's something quite comforting in it as well, but but actually after the line of The Witch in the Wardrobe, what I wanted to do was go into that world myself. So I went right into reading and I wanted that wee private escape of reading books then and, and loving the worlds that they took me to. I mean, did you read the, because I think there's, there's seven books in that, The Chronicles of Narnia, did you then go on and, and want to read I them read, all? No, I read another couple, but I, you know, I went on and read things like Robinson Crusoe and Kidnapped and, you know, Scottish stuff that came out uh, or was around at the time when I would get that. So I didn't, no, I didn't become obsessed. I didn't sort of get into the Lord of the Rings, I have to read everything. I was the same when I, le- I read Lord of the Rings. It was great and I really enjoyed it, but it didn't make me want to read all the rest of it. I didn't, it just made me want to read, you know. And is it something that that book in particular, is that something you've, you know, maybe revisited either as an adult or, or like say when your daughter was younger, did you want to read it to her almost the kind of way of like passing on that memory of what you had as a child then on to her? I think it was one of the first books I bought my daughter, Katie. Ironically, she's not much a reader, but, but um, my other daughter, Hannah, is a big reader. 
and she had dyslexia and I read the Harry Potters to her because, and she has got an absolute avid obsession with that. It never did it to me. They weren't particularly favourites of mine, but I'll never forget what they did for her because it made her want to read that I was able to do that. So it's just the power of it, but the line, the witch, the word, I, I just knew what the power of reading was and that it disappoints me slightly that Katie's not, you know, she's just gone another way. She, books didn't do for her what they've done for my younger daughter. And I think that's it's not the same for everyone and different generations as well. It's funny, I've, I've mentioned this a few times on the podcast. I'm kind of the same with my kids. My oldest daughter reads a wee bit. My middle daughter, she's a voracious reader and my son doesn't read at all. But, you know, it's just one of these things that they... Some of them have taken to it. Rebecca, it was Harry Potter for her as well that she became obsessed with it. And that's why I've always got a lot of time for J.K. Rowling, for that whole generation of kids that just fell in love with books through her, her writing. The same as me. I, I did, I was at a function in, in J.K. Rowling was there. We were lucky enough, we were invited to the premiere of the film as well, which she'd done for multiple sclerosis or something like that. Um, a charity event and you bought tickets to go on. And I didn't meet her then, but I met her at another charity event for Maggie Centre or something. And that was what I said to her. I wanted to thank her because my daughter was now a, an avid reader uh, because of those books. And to have been seen as dyslexic up until four or five, you know, for my daughter to get her higher English was actually a really big leap at that point. And it was due to her being able to read and the love of it and wanting to read because she had fallen in love with the story. It's probably the same as, you know, like Rebecca. And as you, as you say, it's just the next generation of like your generation that would have been things like The Lion, The Witch and the Wardrobe, you know, your daughter's generation, it's Harry Potter. And then the next generation, it'll be something else. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of, because uh, part of this is I'm, I'm trying to take you on your, your literary journey of your life, in terms of your teenage years and, it was interesting, some of the, yeah. you know, the books you then chose, it was things like Dr. Shivago or, or Rebecca or, or Gone with the Wind. And how, how did you discover those books? Is that just something that either the books were in the house or did you find them through libraries or, or how, how did you fall upon yeah, them? I think through television and film, I was an avid in the late 60s, the Saturday musical used to be on. Um, on a Saturday, my mum and dad would go to Motherwell and I was left babysitting nearly if you like, I was 12 or something. And I would watch the films that were on, either musicals or there would be films like Rebecca or whatever. And I realised that in the school library in Motherwell, you know, Daphne du Maurier's books were there and I had taken them out and then seeing the film of the book. And I, I loved, I thought Rebecca, and it was about romance as well, romantic fiction. You know, I haven't put the Mills and Boone that I read at the same time in there, <laughs> but I loved them. They were and hats off to him that you can write a Mills and Boone because uh, for a certain type of readership at a certain time of your life, it's perfect. And and they were sort of really well-written versions of a, a Mills and Boone. I think Rebecca is what a lot of people would look at as a template, if you like, for those romantic novels. There were Georgette Hare, there were all those books that my pals were reading, uh, you know, in English class would be recommended. And for my, my O-levels of them, O-grades, I think Gone with the Wind was was one of the books in there. And I had never seen the film, but it was seen as a classic. And I think I'd need to write essays on it. But again, when I read, I just adored it. That way of 
if you had a library study period, the fact that you could actually sit and, and read that book. And I do remember I was at drama school with them, so I was about 18. They were showing Gone with the Wind in the ABC in Socky Hall Street. And me and a, you know, a few of the drama school pals went, oh, let's go, I'd never seen it. And I almost, I almost burst into tears at the start when Tara opened and Vivian Lee as Scarlett O'Hara came because she was exactly as she was in my head. There's nothing worse than when you've read a book and the pay, you go, that isn't them, they've got it, they've cast it. It was everything. And of course it made me, I went away and researched it all and, and found out that the Battle of Atlanta that they shot was actually shot before they even started the film. And uh, uh, they had done all the, the burning of Atlanta and everything on that. I found out that Vivian Lee was like the fifth choice because they had, they had auditioned Olivia de Havilland and she eventually got another role. That Clark Gable didn't want to do it. I mean, he was Rhett Butler, but he didn't want to do it. He thought it was a woman's picture and he was the interested and all that sort of stuff. I became a wee bit obsessed by it. And that, and that Tara, actually, the house, when the, the dad goes up, right in the opening shot of, of the horse and carriage going up there, to Tara, it's actually painted. It wasn't a real house. They painted it onto the film because they didn't have a house. To, so all of, all of those things I eventually found out and became quite obsessed by, but uh, as you can hear, <laughs> but uh, I... All of those, those books that transported me. And, and I suppose I was also fascinated in a way by the politics of it, by the, the romanticism about the South, but also always thinking that the North were right, that, that you know, that the slaves shouldn't have been slaves and, and all of that sort of stuff, you know. And reading about Hattie McDaniels getting the Oscar for that film after it and not being allowed to sit in the main room with everyone else and having to go in a service elevator because she was black, you know. So it, it sort of stirred a real interest in the politics and the history of it as well for me. And Dr. Shivago was the same. I loved Russia. I loved all the romanticism of that. But again, set against the backdrop of the Russian Revolution and what was really going on there. And in quite extensive detail too, although it's about a love story. And actually that I read from that, an extract from that as my audition for drama school as well. Because it was wondering, you know, that when I was just doing a wee bit of research into Gone with the Wind and apparently back in 2014, it was the second most popular book in the, in the United States after the Bible, which is extraordinary in itself. But I wondered as well, just how people reading it now would view the subject matter and how it was dealt with, you know, with current sensibilities of, of whether it would be more controversial now in terms of how it dealt with that period in that part of America. I don't ever feel that she was condoning the way the South was. I think she was describing it, uh, uh, the, the author was describing it, and Scarlett O'Hara was not a sympathetic figure as a woman. She was selfish, she was spoiled, she was determined, uh, and... Maybe now you could look at it and say that that was what the South was like, that it was full of people who were who were selfish and spoiled, who were held up by a population of Blacks who were enslaved to make their lives better. You know, I think with current sensibilities, 
looking back, I suppose I was reading it in the 70s, so it was just at the end of, or in the middle of civil rights and what was going on in America as well. And, and so I was also doing modern studies at the same time. So it was, we were able to have some sort of examination of it, but I never came out of it thinking, oh, the poor South, uh, yeah. even at 14, I came out going, what a terrible period of history and what a tragedy and all those people dead and all those people lost. And, and I do think that, it is, a, it is a wonderfully written and brilliantly told story, but I think the sensibilities of now will have a very, very different view on it. And, and for young people, I think it'd be really shocking. Oh, did that really happen? You know, it's like us going back and reading, for me, going back and reading another book that I should have put in, actually, is James Robertson's Joseph Knight. And Joseph Knight has those same sensibilities. You know, he was the first black man to win his freedom in Scotland and he I'm part of a campaign to get a statue and all of that put up for him and everything in Glasgow for Glasgow to recognize it it's participation in slavery and all of those things and and I would recommend Joseph Knight to anybody particularly if you've read Gone with the Wind in one hand (laughs) James Knight about what was going on in Scotland and why it happened uh, you know, I love the fact that in the end he won his freedom due to white lawyers here taking on the court session and all of that. Also paid for, help his case was paid for by minors in five who had recently won their own emancipation from, you know, their tied employment and houses and all of that. And they saw this case as akin to theirs and Joseph Knight ended up working as a minor in five married to uh, a woman from Dundee. That, I think, is a wonderful parallel for that. And, and I don't think I would have, it would have been as rich for me. It's a wonderful book anyway, had I not read Gone With Wind. I also think as well, because it's, it's one of these things that I always bang on about, I think sometimes we are not as aware of our own history, the good and bad oh. of it, as, as, as we should. And there's, there's so many brilliant stories and so many important things that we are, we're probably quite ignorant of. And it takes somebody either through a novel to actually yeah. shine a light on it. And then you suddenly go, how did I not know that? What less that happens to me every day. <laughs> but um, certainly that novel, and you know, if you're involved in politics, you know, but I got an A in my higher history. I uh, loved history. No, the wonderful Nori Bissell, who is a, was a fantastic teacher, taught me how to think for myself and all of that uh, within essays and history. And he was a, a big left winger. He was in, uh, I think it was the RCG or they call it, or something like that. But he, he was stimulated by kids who asked questions. He liked it. You weren't being cheeky because you went, yes, sir, what does that mean? And, and he instilled that in me. So, so I, but I did my whole higher history, coming out thinking I knew stuff. I knew hundreds of stuff about the League of Nations. I knew loads of stuff about the United Nations. I, modern studies I did. I didn't know anything about John McLean. I didn't know anything about the rent strikes in Glasgow. I didn't know anything about tanks being in George Square. I didn't know anything really about the whole of Royal Circus and Park Circus was built on slave money. Or I, I didn't know any of that. It was been a real awakening for me in 10, 15, 15 more years ago. And then you would know it and then think, oh, Glasgow wouldn't have been as bad. And then I think it was actually Chris Dolan had, had written a fab piece about the fact that we view ourselves in Glasgow as this, or we were always the side of the workers. Well, we weren't. Nobody came to the slave ships that were sitting, we were building. And apparently 
Abraham Lincoln's government sued the British government for something like $80 million, which was equivalent now, because the only ships that could sink Union ships were built on the Clyde. The Clyde in the west of Scotland sided with the South, and it was the Quakers and others in Edinburgh, that I, that's why there's a statue of Abraham Lincoln in Edinburgh, but not here in Glasgow, and, and it was almost like our history was brushed under the carpet. Although I do think, you know, I, I totally understand my working class people in Glasgow, the poverty, the levels of it, they were, they just wanted a job, they wanted to work, they were, you know, you're not informed. But ironically, the things that are killing us now are sugar, alcohol and tobacco. Those very things that brought this prosperity to the city, there's a, there's a real sort of symbolism in all of that. So I just think you don't, you don't go around greeting about it, but you, you apologise for what, what happened before and recognise it. Truth, yeah. reconciliation, that's how you move forward as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. And, you know, in terms of the history of Scotland, it was interesting, again, when you were just sending me through some of the, the choices and you'd said, obviously, when you went on to drama school and, and you mentioned one play in particular by John McGrath, uh, the Chief at the Stag and the Black, Black Oil, which links the kind of exploitation of Scotland, the land and the resources and the people across almost two centuries and you said that that play in particular was something that kind of changed your life it did change my life i saw it and i didn't even see it in the theater i'd never been to theater i think i'd been once to see the alexander brothers with the guides and i a lot you know i really enjoyed it we were way up in the gods and the kings i always remember it when i'm playing the kings sitting in my our guide uniform and all that with their guides johnny greve was in it and they did wee skits in it walter carr and really really funny one was a drunk man coming home trying to get into his house and what I remember I didn't really understand that because my dad didn't drink or anything but I remember watching the audience hilarious and that noise in the audience and all of that and that stayed with me and then I was babysitting again one night I was 15 and on the telly on a Saturday night came a play for today and it was the recording of the Chief at the Stag and the Black Black Oil and I loved plays for today. I loved all those early Alan Bleasdale and Bennett and people like that going out. I would I would be quite caught up in them. And my mum loved plays as well. She listened to them on the radio and all that. And I got caught up. I was waiting on the Hammer Horror movie coming on. And, and there was this play. And it was in Scottish accents. And, and there were people dancing. But it was the old the White Heather Club and Kelts and Haggis. It was taking that form and doing something else with it. And I just remember being so struck by it. And then when I went to drama school, I, I loved entertainment that didn't pretend the audience wasn't there. I think film and television are great for that. But theatre, I love, you know, when the audience are there. I can't be arsed with, pretend, let's pretend there's no audience. No, there's 400 people sitting <laughs> you know, and get involved in it. So... Maybe that's why I ended up getting drawn into pantomime and things to, for that audience participation. But certainly at that point, 784 and Wildcat were the theatre companies. And it was 784 I saw. I went to the six. And it was because of Chevy and the Stag that I was, we, we read it at drama school and I loved it. And I went, I sat in the six and they were doing a show called Out of Our Heads. It was about alcoholism in Glasgow and John McGrath had written that. Terry Neeson was in it and Davy Anderson and they had a band and it blew me away because I had been singing a lot in clubs and, and I could play keyboards as well. I got piano lessons for years 
And, and when I saw that, I went, that's what I want to do. I want to do that. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't even remotely know. And then when I, I was part of being at drama school, if you changed by a teacher, you had to go to Glasgow Uni and do the certificate in dramatic studies, which was a much more theory-based part of your course. And for my thesis, I did 784. And so, ironically, I then got to go and meet Dave Anderson because I interviewed them. I always remind Dave Anderson that when I went to the Dolphin Arts Centre in Bridgeton and they were doing a play and I, I was allowed in and sitting there, I was 19 or something, sitting there like the wee girl and he walked by me and I was writing on a pad and he went, are you press? And I went, <laughs> no. <laughs> and he went, all right. And Terry Neeson was really kind. She gave me like programmes and, and I put together, yeah, I don't think it was that, that good a thesis actually, but that was my first in into political theatre and what they were doing. And I was really fascinated by the fact that they spoke to the audience, that they wanted audience participation and that it had everything in it. But I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to even write to them to say, can I get a job? I didn't think I was, you know, I was for Lanarkshire. I, had, I, I was trained to be a teacher. So I went and did my postgrad in Edinburgh and I, did, I acted a lot with Edinburgh University Theatre Company and did things like David Mamet plays, Sexual Perversity in Chicago, all that. You know, a real variety of stuff and it was a great, more than I'd actually done at drama school because when you did the teaching course, you were seen as you weren't really an actor. You got a, one play a year or something to do, the actors did all the stuff, the acting course. So there I learned a lot more of my craft, I, but I was teaching in a high school by then and... I saw that I actually got a job with a, a theatre company down south. But at that point, the union, the actors' union, was a closed shop. So you couldn't act unless you had a card, and you couldn't get a card unless you got a job. And I, I had to turn down the job because I didn't have an equity card. And then I wrote to Wildcat because of that saying, I'd been teaching for a couple of years and just knew I needed something else. Dave McLennan, who eventually became a really, really dear and close friend, met me in the Cafe Royal and said, oh, you're perfect for us. We've no jobs at the moment. And he recommended me to John McGrath, ironically. Two days later, I'm teaching a class uh, in Firhill High in Edinburgh and the secretary came in and went, Miss Smith, there's a phone call for you. And I said, do you know who it is? And she said, it's a John McGrath. So, of course, he was like a hero for me. And I went on the phone and he said... Uh, Dave McLennan tells me you'd be a perfect, um, whatever part it was, he said, would you come and see us? And I went and auditioned and I got my card and it was for a series of plays called Clyde Built that, and Joe Corey's in Time of Strife and things like that were in it and Men Should Weep. And I did the first one called Golden His Boots, which ironically was about football. And Johnny Watson, who I'd been at drama school with, he played my boyfriend and, and all that in it. And it was a, a brilliant learning. And I gave up teaching for a seven-week contract, went and did it. But that thread of John McGrath, you know, John was at her wedding and, and all of that all the way through. And I, I, I never, ever forgot that where it started was seeing the Chevy at the Stag on television. But I suppose it's those, I mean, I don't know if you ever, you think back to those kind of pivotal moments of, oh, yeah. did you say that, that phone call where you're in a classroom? Because you... You may be thinking, I might be teaching for the next few years, and suddenly that phone call does change your life. Changed everything. I had gone for promotion as a teacher as well, and, and I didn't get it, and I was really upset. I was very young. I was only 22, 23. 
So now looking back, I was far too young for it, but I'd gone for it. But had I got that, that would have been a much, much more difficult choice. And my parents did, they were a bit, because I had, by that point, I bought a wee flat in Scotson in Earl Street and I had a wee one bed flat. And their immediate thing was, how are you going to pay your mortgage? Because I was going from a teacher's salary to moving back from Edinburgh to Glasgow to, and I, I think I cashed in my super ad and lived <laughs> on that very well. And then fortunately got a job with Wildcat in the summer. But I let, I just, just knew in my soul, I can't describe it in any way, that this was the right path for me to go on. Sometimes well. I've doubted it. Sometimes I've thought, <laughs> maybe it'd be better being a head teacher somewhere, but, you know, eventually, but. And a more secure and less dangerous isn't, isn't the word, but uh, you are sort of visible, very visible, you know, in, in what you do. But it was never about, I, I never did it because I wanted to be famous. I did it because I took the job because I couldn't believe I'd got it. And actually my whole career, the first 10 years was, I'd, everybody kept saying, because you're always working. And it's just because I took every job that was there. I was so, so amazed that MD would employ me. So I was always doing four jobs a day sort of thing. But you're right, it's those, when you look back in your life, it's those really pivotal moments. But also, had I not gone to teacher training college and, and got involved in left politics, I was in women's fight back, I was in every demonstration there was to be had for... Nicaragua, El Salvador, you know, anti-apartheid, you know, the big unemployment marches, all that sort of stuff. But again, that, that was about reading. It was about my feminism and, and it's probably what you're going to come on to next, my feminism and my politics. There were two books. There were many more than two, but reading The Ragged Trouser Philanthropist and reading The Woman's Room confirmed much of what 1960s and 70s Lanarkshire had, and Scotland had, had bred into me, but I, the woman's room made me see my mother's life, my auntie's lives, my, and it awoke a, a feminism in me and, and made me go and read everything from Betty Friedan and, and them all and join uh, the women's movement. And the Ragged Trouser Philanthropist was my dad, working in a factory in Bell and Moss End and, and my uncles and and suddenly seeing how things worked, you know? Well, you're listening to the Read Aloud podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, Elaine C. Smith. And Elaine, you, you know, you mentioned The Women's Room by Marlon French. And is that one of those books that stays with you as, as something that, again, that we spoke about how a phone call changed your life in terms of your career, but that book changes, as you say, the kind of way you think about the world and, and your own place in it, I suppose. Absolutely. Initially, it was more about my mum's generation because it wasn't really my generation. I was, I was the lucky recipient of the fight of the women ahead of me. But I realised how trapped my mum was and many women of her generation. Now, willingly trapped in many ways, you know, and, and for many women, happily, that was where they were, that they didn't want a career, they, or, or they didn't see the possibilities of that. I was the generation that was able to have both, and nobody would even, my daughters wouldn't even bat an eyelid at that now. But I was coming behind the vanguard, if you like, who were changing it. But I do remember giving my mum the woman's room to read, and then my mum then would have been in her 40s, early 40s. 
she said she found it too upsetting because it was her life. And she did go back and do her hires and change her life. And sadly, her and my dad divorced and she got on with her, her own life to a certain extent, learned to drive, all those things that she hadn't thought possible until that point, you know, and had her own money and her own career. But at the time, it probably was a bit of an awakening for her, but it was frightening. And I think we forget that for some people, actually seeing the, the circumstances of their life doesn't help. It just makes them feel worse. For me, it made me go and, and just read everything and embrace women's politics, violence against women, all of those things. At a time when, you know, domestic violence was sin- still seen as a domestic you know it's just a domestic I will leave it it's just a two or that hidden world and then I, I saw lots of conditions that that relatives and women I knew had been living in over a period of time and I suddenly understood all of that so it, ma- it made me read even more it made you know Nancy Friday's books, all the Beyond the Fragments, Jermaine Greer, you know, Simone de Beauvoir, off I went. I'm sure it was a real pain in the arse for a long time as well, because I was, you know, and it was at that time if you did bring anything up, you know, it was always that thing of, because it could be, not amongst the women, but it could be perceived as quite humorless. And I'm a humorous person, I love to laugh and uh, you know, so if you pulled a guy up who slapped your ass when you were in Buster Browns in Edinburgh or whatever, you, the response was always, oh, come on, it's just a joke. Have a sense of humour, you know? That argument was, you know, used all the time. And, we, uh, and it, of course, what it made you do was it become even more strident. I was that, I was that woman selling, you know, women's fight back with my cropped hair and my Palestinian shawl. And my denim jacket with hers or badges at the top of Leith Walk outside the <laughs> James Center. But do you know the difference? Folk bought my papers because I made them laugh. I realized then, even at 20 or 21, I, I would go, oh, come on. And, and I'd make people laugh. They'd go, all right, give your paper or whatever. And I've always found that, and that's continued, that you can actually make a better political point about anything if you make people laugh first. Because I suppose that the only thing that struck me was, you know, obviously from your mum's generation to your generation to your daughter's generation and there's been progress, but it's still, I suppose, like particularly if women looking at it, there's no there's no room for complacency. Because, for example, if you take the workplace, there's still a disparity in what women earn to what men earn doing the exact same job. And then even the, the lockdown of the last year's highlighted the, the kind of difficulties that still exist in terms of domestic violence that... Obviously, people maybe have a, a different attitude towards how it's dealt with, but it's still there and it's still, these sort of things still need to be tackled. Oh, absolutely. They've not gone away. I, I remember having an argument with somebody where they were talking about post-feminism and I was going, hey, hey, feminism, has they reached certain parts yet? You know, we're, there's no post-feminism. And also that, that notion that feminism is anti-men. It's not. It's about anti-where the power is. And if the power lies with one thing, then it has to be shared out there, you know. And the the pandemic has highlighted everything about poverty, about those people who are at the bottom, and those people. And we know that though the, the vast majority of people in care homes who are working in there are poorly paid women who are at times going to work even though they're unwell because there is no safety net for them. There is no 
and not a lot of respect for them either, unless you're on the receiving end or unless your family are, then you can see the work that they do. And all of us go, the work, they're angels, they should be paid more. And then when it comes to it, it doesn't really happen. And with domestic violence as well. I mean, there is progress in that it's recognised and it's recognised that it doesn't only happen to working class women. And, and certainly even in my own reading and research and involvement over the years, the amount of middle-class women and upper-class women who were still, and, and wealthy women, who are still at the behest of their wealthy husband, because if they leave them, they lose everything. I think those issues have to still be front and centre, even though we as a society are better at recognising it and in, some, and in a lot of cases dealing with it. But um, it's not going away from me. I, you know, I, I will never get to the point of saying I'm not a feminist. In terms of the, the podcast, and one of the things I always try and ask people if they can, a book they would recommend to anyone, which is, is one of the most difficult questions, because how do you just choose one oh. book to recommend? But it was interesting, some of the, the writers that you'd chosen, particularly a lot of, a lot of female writers, Maya Angelou, Alice Walker, and Tyler, who's I think is amazing, and Enright, but also you'd mentioned Toni Morrison's Beloved as possibly your favourite novel. Is that something you do recommend to people or, or is it something that's quite a difficult thing to do? No, I think I, I should have been awarded some shares at the time when I read <laughs> it. I think I, have, I must have bought 40 copies to send to pals and stuff like that. It is the finest book I have ever read. It encapsulates everything we've been talking about. Apart from beautiful writing, it encapsulates women, it encapsulates sort of uh, slavery, magic. Uh, there's another worldliness about it as well. Struggle, love, joy, you name it. It's just, I've read many, many brilliant, brilliant books, but I have, I've never read anything that that has touched, I would recommend it to anybody. And if they didn't like it, I don't think I could be friends with them again. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting because I've asked people this question before because I, one of the books I always recommend to people is The Cone Gatherers, uh, Robin Jenkins' book. And yeah. I'm, I'm kind of slightly like you. If people come back to me and they either don't like it or they think it's okay, I'm, I, I'm slightly judgmental about them. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. You're a bit like, wow. I don't know what's going on in your head, you know. So, uh, yeah, that's that's definitely the one. I, so I'd read, I'd read Maya Angelou and knew of her, but Toni Morrison, not to say she's better, just, she just blew me away. She just blew me away. Because interesting, I remember reading something about her before because she was a bit of a trailblazer. And I think in the 70s, I'm sure it was Penguin she worked for, and she she was the first African-American woman who was like the fiction editor for Penguin in, in New York. I suppose that's where she honed her craft as well in terms of editing other books. But, you know, she yeah. was leading the way in terms of women, but also African-American women in a very much male and white industry. And then she then goes on to write all these incredible very books. So. It's interesting as well that, to, to my, I can't remember, but yeah, 2019, I, I worked with the National Theatre Scotland for the first time. I did Jackie Kay's Red Dust Road and I played Jackie's mum in it. And of course, Jackie is our marker. She's mixed race, Nigerian, Scots. And for the first time, and it brings us back to what we're talking about, but Scotland, for the first time in a 35-year career, I worked in a cast that was Afro-Caribbean, Nigerian. I had never in the whole time I'd worked in Scotland been on stage. It was wonderful. I had known Jackie 
as a child, when I was a wildcat, her dad, John Kay, and her mum, a Helen, fabulous woman, they, they were Communist Party members, and John was on the board of Wildcat. And they, in the 1960s, adopted two mixed-race children. So John, when we were in rehearsals at the company show, I met, and it took me years to put that wee girl, and then to end up playing her mum, a woman I knew. That experience and, and that wealth of writing, I can see, informs Jackie's writing. It made me go during that and read Audre Lorde and people like that and, and widen that experience from a Scottish perspective as well, you know, to see that there was a wonderful bit in the play about John Kay buying a poster for Jackie for her bedroom of Angela Davis. And there's Angela Davis, this amazing political figure with a fabulous afro and all that imprisoned. And here you are, the left in Scotland, supporting her and him with his daughter going, this is it. And so there's a wonderful bit in the play about it. And just about four months ago, Jackie at the Manchester Literary Festival went online and she was interviewing live Angela Davis. You know, mm -hmm. it was this real weird, and it was, it was magical to watch, you know, and Part of our discussions when we were rehearsing with everybody, with the director and everything, was about was about Toni Morrison. And Toni Morrison died during the rehearsals. And so there was a real moment of grieving for all of us, you know, whatever race, of a great, great literary figure just, you know, no longer being there anymore. So I sort of saw it in action as well, which she was, but she's, she was just, is still just ill. Yeah, and I think I also think as well that Red Dust Road, Jackie Kay's book, is another one of those books that people should read, and it's absolutely brilliant. It's a stunning book. I hadn't seen Jackie for a long time, and I cut, when the book came out, I met her at some at the French to tell her how stunning the book was, and we met in the queue going into something, and she said, Elaine, do you remember me? And I was like, oh, my God, and then she came along at my stand-up show or something, and we were then in touch, and, and it was a no-brainer for me when uh, it came along that to go and play Helen was just fabulous. That should be on my list, sorry about that, Paul, but that should be on my list as a, a book. That's a book every Scot should read. Absolutely, I, I totally agree with you. Because one of the things I was going to ask you <coughs> is, obviously in terms of, uh, you, you know, you were talking about the cast of that that play, but casting in general, for example, the, the Two Doors Down series that you're involved in, I mean, obviously the, the writing, the comic writing is brilliant. The casting in that and, and in anything, I'm guessing, is absolutely crucial because that, that makes a difference for, for me as a as a viewer and in the audience. You totally buy into it because the casting in that series, for example, is just stunning, I think. Uh, and it's ironic because I, I wasn't in the pilot because I was in Panto in Aberdeen and... I remember my husband, Bob, saying, oh, I saw because Alex Norton is one of my best pals and he directed uh, Shirley Valentine and lots of pantos. Johnny Watson, I have known since I was 18. He was the year below me at drama school, although he is older, I'd like to see. Um, <laughs> and uh, he'll, he'll laugh at that. It was a weird thing. As women, you tend to, if you're in a comedy show, you're the only woman. So I knew of Arabella because she was in the fast show. And I remember years ago, I'd asked her to come on to a show I was doing and she couldn't do it. But we both had a sort of, we knew of each other and had a sort of admiration for each other as comedy women working in a very male environment. And I loved doing from Smack the Pony. I'd seen her in that and thought she was really clever and funny. She's younger and 
And I have to say, Dune's performance as Cathy is absolutely brilliant. And because she's no Scottish, her accent is fantastic. She went to high school here in five for five years, but she's a brilliant mimic. She said she had to learn to lose her posh English accent very quickly and was a great mimic. She said, I used to do John Cleese and everything like that. She'll come up to me just when we're starting filming and go, right, say this. And I would say it and she'll go, right. And, and she just starts. And once she's in it, I, her accent is stunning. The boys, you know, Kieran is just fantastic. Alex Norton, Johnny, and, and bringing Grado and Joy in as well. I think it's key, but I went along thinking, you know, as an actor, when you hear that something else is brilliant, you actually just get really jealous because you're no in it. So Bob was saying, that thing that Alec and Johnny did was great. I was like, oh, was it? <laughs> you know? Um, and then I watched it and I thought, oh, that's really good. And then it never went to a series. And, and about a year later, I saw a thing, an article in the paper saying that they were writing a series. And I said to my agent in London, I said, you know, if I never come up in that, you know, woman at bus stop or thinking a wee role, you know, going to say it, I'd be happy to do it. Because a lot of times people don't ask because you think, oh, she wouldn't do that because it's a wee part or whatever. I don't want to do it because I think she's shite, whatever it may be, you know. So my agent said, yeah, and then about a couple of months later, I was actually, they were wanting me to go into River City and I just wasn't sure about doing a soap at all. And in the same day, I had a meeting with Steve Carney and Gregor Sharp, who was one of the writers of Two Doors Down, I was chatting to them like it was an interview. I didn't realise that they were wanting me to play Sharon's mum. You know, I think Sharon Rooney's just fantastic. And so a week later, I get this thing and they want me in all episodes. And, and it's weird because it fits exactly between my Edinburgh Festival show and Panto. The week's just tail end and all that. And I just thought the writing was fantastic. And I thought it was fresh. I thought it was different for Scotland. I love the fact that there were gay characters, but it wasn't all about them being gay. You know, they just were. And that to me was saying who Scotland was. I loved Christine because she was classic of one of those women that Disney have a man to tell her to shut it. <laughs> so there's a liberation in that. And that she gets away with saying whatever she wanted, the men are quite fear of her. And also the swearing. And like you, I've got a real thing about authenticity and I can't bear it when I hear middle-class actors swearing because they don't know how to swear right. You know, they don't know how to get the, in there. And it's written beautifully, but also it's about the way you deliver the swear that makes it funny as opposed to jump out at you and go, you didn't need to say that, you know, there. And there are times when Simon, one of the writers, will come in and go, I think we need another fuck there. And I'll go, <laughs> right? Or I'll say, I don't think we need it there. I think we need it there. I think we need Donald fucking Duck as opposed to fucking Donald Duck. <laughs> or, you know, so those, we know where, where it works the best. But um, it, she is a complete joy. And I'm not, it's not humility here in that. I really did think, you know, I've had a wonderful career. I've had my shot. There are really, really good actors and actresses out there in Scotland not getting a break. And so I really thought, it was like, I never wanted to be in still game, not because I didn't think it was great, because I thought it's their turn. It's, you know, there's a great cast of people, good luck to them. 
And so when this came along, it, it was a complete sort of surprise in a way and, and a, a wonderful surprise. And I think it, it, it's now up at what, 36 million on iPlayer or something. It's bizarre uh, how, particularly during lockdown, I think people are just looking for stuff to watch and they watch it over and over and over. I mean, I think it's, I mean, I, I, apart from the fact I think it's absolutely wonderful. I think it's one of those things that once you, once you watch a couple of episodes, you're totally hooked in the characters, and and then that's you. After that, you're completely that's, you're in it hook, line, and sinker. Like I don't know why you've seen Shit's Creek, the Canadian one, and that again, it's a slow burn. But once you're in, you know, I found by the end of the sixth series, I was sitting greeting, you know, <laughs> oh no, don't let it be finished, you know. So I, I do. I, I think people look more for that these days than. That instant, oh, there, there's, we all love an instant laugh, but I think we love discovering stuff and we love being able to say to people, oh, have you seen that? Watch that. Uh, we're all doing that. I'm actually, Bob and I have come up with an idea of doing a podcast and I'm calling it hashtag slouch in the couch. <laughs> <So> <laughs> what are you reading? What are you watching? Because I realise that's what I talk about to my pals all the time. And I'm sure... This is out of your love of books and what you're doing during this that you want to speak to people about. Well, do you know, it came about from basically having conversations with Chris Dolan, who I know you know really well. And basically when we were sitting having a cup of coffee and we'd invariably chat about books that we've been reading or going to read. And that's when I got the idea and I thought I'd love to just keep doing that. And, you know, if you love books, for me, just sitting and talking to people about their favourite books is, is absolutely brilliant, which is always great. But then this is when I always love to ask people, also the book that they couldn't be paid to read again. And you've chosen uh, Fifty Shades of Grey by E.L. James, but also I'm, I'm sure this is a plea for Tesco to, to refund you for having paid the money to buy it in the first place. I had that sort of a reverse snobbery because I would hear Radio 4 shows about, you know, oh, and sort of looking down the nose a, a bit. And I thought, so I've got a sort of, anti thing you know it's like uh, all the comedy people in London at one point it was all Oxbridge types who would look down the nose at something like Mrs Brown you know and and I hate all of that you know because it's about privilege and stuff and and so Mrs Brown might not be my favorite show but I get that for some people it's wonderful and they love it you know lots of people don't like Pac-Man but you know you don't want it shut down you know or they don't like opera or whatever it's a bit taste. So I had had a sort of rebellion against it. And I thought, oh, it's bloody terrible. They're all so snobby. It's just a bit, and, and if loads of people are reading it, then why shouldn't I? So I picked it up in Tesco for three quid before I went on my holidays. And I sat around. It wasn't that, I don't think she's a bad writer or anything like that, but it was like, part of me was going, are the sex lives of women so bad that they would actually think this was great? Jerry Godley, who always makes me laugh, she had a brilliant thing about, you know, see if she said a thing in her stand-up. She wouldn't mind me quoting her, say we're like sisters. Um, but uh, see if I met a guy and he took me back to a fancy hotel and he tied me to the bedpost and he started slamming up and doing stuff to me. You know what I'd say? I'd say, hey, pal, I'm Fish Edelson. I'll get your motor torched. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that, you know, and, and it was a great thing of, you know, comedy of, you know, but and getting the train into the town and their Chinese love balls all fall at the, <laughs> their pants. <laughs> Do you know, I was just like, is it that bad or is it going to end up that 
some, some couple, she says, I want this time at the bed, whatever, and he goes down the stairs, watches the football, forgets, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> and he's sleeping around the telly, and her mother-in-law finds her the next morning, <laughs> you know, naked time. So there was all of that stuff. There was a great room for comedy, but my initial reaction was that, and that, is this what we are? We're waiting on the virgin to come along and meet the rich guy that can do whatever he wants to her. Are we still there? And halfway through, I actually did. I threw the book across the apartment in Portugal. I was like, I was so raging at it. But I forced myself to read it. I don't think, in the end, I don't think I did finish it, but it just depressed me beyond. I I never went to see the film. No, apparently the film was better. And I get that that women were going along together to watch it. You know, it's like going to see the Chippendales, but I've never really been that interested in seeing the Chippendales either. (laughs) So I'm not slagging her writing. She did a thing that obviously triggered with loads and loads of people. But for me, I just thought, She's bent. She was better than that. I mean, in terms of, again, when you were sending me the list of some of your favourite books, and what was quite interesting, again, I'm, I'm not sure, there was a lot of Scottish books. I mean, there's, there's, there's so many great Scottish authors and so many great Scottish books that are kind of ongoing. And is that something, again, you're very, we were talking earlier on about Scottish history and, and kind of knowing that history. Part of that is obviously the culture in terms of literature. Are you very conscious of wanting to, to read what our writers are, are producing? I think they are, I think particularly politically in Scotland, given what has transpired over the last 30, 40 years, that writers again have been at the vanguard of it, and the way they were in Czechoslovakia and uh, in Ireland as well, you know, that, that writers can form ideas and opinions and, and they also allow us to dream. You know, it's like permission to dream, sir. You know, are we allowed to do that in, in Scotland? And, and certainly for a lot of my early life in Scotland, it wasn't so, it was writers. Liz Lockhead is 10 years older than me, but she was brought up around the corner from me, went to the same primary school. She was that lassie that was a poet and went to art school. You know, we never, uh, and her, her sister, lovely Janice, was in my class at school as well. And so she was like this mystical creature, if you like. And then to read her awakenings and her opinions about women and life and observations and stuff. But Joni Mitchell did that for me as well. But then discovering through her and and then Wildcat, we were all part of that grouping, if you like. All those writers, Tom Leonard, James Kelman, Alistair Gray. I love Tom Leonard. I absolutely thought his observations on class and working class particularly. The Six O'Clock News is one of my favourite ever things. The liaison coordinator I love too. All of those observations, I think, just shone lights on on where we were. And, and it didn't mean that everybody was sitting reading them, but they made me feel not alone. And when Alice Gray wrote Lanark, I mean, Lanark was a classic. And, you know, fantastic. And, and what, it, what it did and him winning all the awards and prizes and, and all that with it was, again, that thing of of Scotland maturing and growing up and the, and he he was part of that movement. I was the generation behind, but all those, Tom McGrath and you had John McGrath and Dave McLean and Dave Anderson in theatre, you had all of that. And then the writers that came up behind that, you know, the Janice Galloways, the James Robertsons, 
and many, I mean, it's terrible. There's so many I could name. Coming up behind that, David Gregg, I can see as a playwright and writer and his observations and allowing many, many more female voices in there too. So I think it's it's hugely, hugely important for it, Scotland as a country and a, a nation to have these thinkers and these great ideas uh, who present these ideas, whether you agree with them or not, present them and it makes us tune into the higher stuff. Because one of the books you mentioned that you've obviously read recently was uh, Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, which I, I read just at the start of 2021 and I just couldn't believe how good it was. It, I mean, I, it literally was one of those books I read it in a couple of days. It was just it utterly blew me away of just how stunning that book was. You know, I've, I kind of passed it on to my daughter and I've just said to people, you, just, you need to read this book. It's just breathtaking. It's breathtaking. And initially, I, I've read all of my grandfather's stuff. I loved I Am, I Am, I Am, and, and all the other uh, stuff. So when I saw it, and then I, I went, oh, shit, during Shakespeare's said, well, I can't even ask for that. You know, so I actually sat for a while before I went to it, and I was like, oh, I don't know whether I want a historical, but I got into it, and I couldn't put it down. And also from someone who works in theatre, and, you know, I did Hamlet for my Fleming Hire, uh, English and stuff, and, and I've seen it performed and, and done speeches and all that. The understanding, finally, of what that play, that it was brilliant, but also set, she wrote it before, and it, I, I've just come out of a play where all, every theatre in Scotland has had to close because of plague. And here is this book set at a time where she talks about Shakespeare coming back from London, from the Globe Theatre to Stratford, because the theatre's closed because of plague. You know, it, it blew me away. I thought the, the writing, the story, the Anne Hathaway characters, the kids, everything, and, and I was in it. I was in that world in a way I'd never been able to go in, even reading Shakespeare itself. Because I've said to people, it's good. There's, there's a section in the book, which is one of the most heartbreakingly sad things I've ever read, that she just captures perfectly. You don't want to spoil it for people by telling them but actually, when you read it, it just it knocks you for six. One thing I was just going to, we're almost kind of getting to the end of the, the podcast, Elaine. But you, is, it, is it still Monday? <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you mentioned right at the start that um, obviously I think was it one of your daughters had said to you about, you know, you writing a book. And it just always strikes me, because obviously one of the first bits of advice any writer's given is you have to read a lot. And obviously you do and have this kind of breadth of, fact and fiction books that you read have you ever been tempted to to write a novel yourself or is, as you said you maybe you're just you're waiting for the right idea to to come into your head i think once you've you are widely read you also have a huge respect you know i'm never going to be able to write as well as andrew o'hagan that's not going to happen mayflies a friend of mine said that as well his words they flow off the page to you you know it's a long time since i've sat with a book and actually started writing down phrases that he was using. Just lovely, gorgeous, funny things like, you know, she always made a festival of her circumstances. And dark stuff like, he took his shame out on all of us. Was, you know, just beautiful. You didn't need to go into detail about it, he knew exactly what it was. So I find things like that a wee bit intimidating. And then I read something like Shuggy Bane, which I have to say, when I started reading it, I thought, oh, God, it's going to be another misery memoir about Glasgow. Can I face it? And then I got 
absolutely pulled in his storytelling and also finding out from Douglas, who I've now been in touch with, that it was turned down by 32 publishers, you know. So, so that sort of gives you a wee bit of hope about and how long it took him to write it and the story he wanted to tell. And for me, the really important thing about that book is, is apart from it's about love, but it's also about women and addiction and alcoholism, which is in the huge range of West Coast macho literature doesn't really feature a lot. And in my life, I can say that I know that there are several daughters of alcoholic women, beautiful, talented alcoholic women whose daughters are damaged and, and had to live with that as well, and sons as well. And so for me, that overriding thing about, about there. So, but I look at that and think, it's not about having a bestseller, it's about writing the story. And I learned years and years ago, working for the Evening Times and then doing a column for the Daily Record. A great editor, George McKechnie, the Ayatollah, I used to call him, who he called out the office and it was him that got, and Russell Kyle, who got me to, to write. A, a, and I wrote my first column and Russell Kyle, I remember phoning up. And I wrote it, of course, like a university essay, you know, so that people would think she's awfully clever. And, uh, and Russell came on and went, who the hell's that? I went, what do you mean? He said, you need Elaine Smith. That's not, and, and I realised that if I write, I have to write in my own voice. And I would say that to any writer, really, that it's your authentic voice and to be able to write as yourself. And even when I write my stand-up or whatever, I, I write it all down. I write it all down like a story and then I re-edit re it and go, no, do, do that guy, do that. So I've got about three hours of material that I go, I'll do that, I'll do that. And I can mix it up because I've written it, because I've, I've written and I know the picture I'm painting and all that. But actually, I haven't felt creative enough at all during lockdown. So I know everybody thinks during lockdown they were going to write their best-selling novel. It's not happened to me exactly. <laughs> but maybe, maybe one day I will. Well, listen, I'm still, I'm still pinning my hopes and, and one day that I get a guest on this and they'll choose their, their favourite book will be a novel by Elaine C. Smith. Oh, well, that's very nice of you. <laughs> I wouldn't use my own name. <laughs> um, but listen, Elaine, we we have we have sadly run out of time. I, I have to tell you, it has been a real joy sitting talking to you about a just a few of your really just a few of your favourite books. Yeah, we should have made it a series. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I might we'll be back on to you for for a series on it. But listen, I've I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks very much for being so on the much. podcast. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.